All right, welcome to the MacGuffin Men. Uh, after 10 years, we have finally had to re-record a piece. Um, we recorded this whole podcast on Nomadland coming up, but I neglected to mention a note that I think has been under-discussed in Nomadland and specifically about Francis McDormand's uh, career as a whole. So if you look at um, the beginning of Francis McDormand's career, like we always think of uh, the Coen brothers as these sort of bastions of uh, independent film. And, but like Frances McDormand was there from day one. She's in Blood Simple, right? Which is this really notable movie in the American independent film landscape, right? Um, that uh, the Coens combined with like Jim Jarmusch and Spike Lee in, in the 80s. Um, basically like, and Steven Soderbergh in 1989 is the real cresting of this. Like that is um, in American independent film as we know it now is that, you know, it's like that. And um, and then you get through the, the mid 90s and she um, stars in Fargo, which is like not an independent film, but it is also, but it is very emblematic of the continued shift in film towards um, like these multinational companies just throwing a little bit of money at something like Kooky and seeing if it works. And that's exactly what Fargo was. And then you jump forward to Nomadland and this is the next uh, phase of independent film. And it's, I mean, it's kind of funded by um, just all these little little pieces. And it has somehow been successful in the modern world where, um, as we'll talk about later, the movies are either huge or tiny and Nomadland is tiny. And I think the thing that often gets overlooked with discussing Frances McDormand is because she's such a good act- actor, um, people forget like how important she is in the history of cinema and how present she is. And not just the history of cinema, but the history of specifically good, creative, inventive <laughs> cinema. And right. the, I think she has four Oscars now, three, three for acting and four and uh, fourth for producing Nomadland. Um, and that's just like, that is a career that is just like, what, <laughs> what is that career? Like, what is the, what is, <laughs> what's analogous to that? Right? Like we think of Brad Pitt as the biggest star in the world. He recently won his first, um, his first acting Oscar. I think he has a producing Oscar for 12 years a slave. Right. But like, f- f- we would never talk about Frances McDormand as this sort of Hollywood luminary like that. Um, she's just a good actor. And I think the fact that maybe she's so good at being an actor and gives us so little of her personality, uh, has sort of encouraged us to forget the fact that she is like, you cannot write the history of American film of good American film without (laughs) Francis McDormand appearing like very prominently with a lot of exclamation marks, every couple of chapters. And I think that's so important to understand before we have this conversation of Nomadland, which we will know have, and I remember it being good. So I hope you enjoy it. (laughs) All right, James, here we are. (laughs) <laughs> yep, we, we've pissed on the fence. We've seen the title card. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so today's podcast is uh, Nomadland, directed by Chloe Zhao. And uh, basically the genesis of this movie begins with uh, Francis McDormand seeing The Rider, which is uh, Zhao's previous film. Um, so Zhao made the movie The Rider about 
Brady Jandro, uh, who is a, a cowboy who is recovering from an injury. It's a very good film. And Francis McDormand, who owned the rights to the book Nomadland by Jessica Bruder at this point, uh, saw the writer at, I believe, TIFF, probably in 2016 or 2017, and said, out, apparently said out loud to her producing partner at the end of the movie, who the fuck is Chloe Zhao? And, uh, <laughs> in the nice way. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and uh, then they... You know, they they met, set out to make the film, and uh, the movie that that became is Nomadland, and uh, it won Best Picture. And uh, the one tradition we have, save for one year, um, on this podcast is we talk about the Best Picture winner. And uh, I think I would have pushed to talk about this movie, whether regardless of it winning the Oscar, just because it's very much in my wheelhouse stylistically. Um, but yeah, I, I like this movie very much. I like all of jazz films uh, quite a bit. Um, and yeah, it's uh, it's weird that movies like this winning Oscars is just normal now, but uh, it's way better than the way that it was, you know. So uh, okay, so I'll take it. Yeah, and so what do you mean movies like this? Well, it's kind of so. I mean, I think what is this like two out of three, or sorry, two of the last four years, movies with five million dollar budgets have won best best picture. <laughs> you know, it's like like. Like, oh, a movie as, as independent as Moonlight wins Best Picture. And then Chloe Zhao comes along and is like, we're not going to, we're going to use one actor. Take that. You know, <laughs> um, it's, I don't know, it's fascinating. And I know that Disney owns the, owns Nomadland. So uh, it's, if we're getting into an argument of which movie is more independent, Moonlight or Nomadland, you know, uh, Moonlight's going to win. But um, there is just like a free flowing, uh stylistic and just sort of choice of actors that exists in in Nomadland that gives it a more even more removed from Hollywood feel than Moonlight uh because Moonlight is a more stylistic like obviously stylistic movie it's it's it looks more like a traditional movie I think even though uh, Barry Jenkins style is very um I don't want to say flashy but he makes hard choices and I love, that's why I love Barry <laughs> Jenkins, you know, but I, I love Chloe Zhao for different, different reasons, but they both boil down to individual choices, but um, yeah, but, and, let's not make this whole podcast comparing those two movies, but yeah. no, 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 absolutely not. But, um, but it's important to point out that the, the, the way that this got to be a Disney movie isn't as mm. straightforward as all that. True. A, it's because of you the know, there's a long history of the distribution rights. That, um, I don't know that we need to, to retrace entirely, but mm. uh, this became a Disney plus movie in a way that not many uh, streaming services. Um, I don't know. Maybe original is not even the right word, but yeah. you know, uh, unique releases um, wouldn't have come to fruition in this way yeah and the short the short way to tell that story is that this is a fox searchlight movie and um fox was sold to disney and um now fox searchlight is just searchlight and this is a searchlight movie that just technically falls under the disney umbrella yeah so yeah it was it was a fox movie initially now it's a disney movie and this their streaming service so weirdly you go to disney plus for it yeah (laughs) yeah and that seems wild too and i think maybe some larger parallels will come up um about that but just because you talked about the style of this i think we can we can start there just because that's (laughs) so macro as well um you said it's not as uh i'll paraphrase like as straightforward as moonlight which already isn't straightforward is that accurate yeah 
Yeah, I mean, Moonlight is such a complicated movie stylistically. Like it's, I mean, we we talked, I I talked about it for maybe forty minutes straight when we did a podcast about (laughs) it about how much I love it. Um, but uh, the idea, like, so yes, let's not okay. Continue. Yeah, no, no, (laughs) and mine isn't by way of comparing the two. Yeah, but just that um, this movie is uh, just I think meandering is the right word for it. it. It's really not um a typical the structure in the way a typical film is yes um, there's a I lot guess. of like finding things on set you know finding elements of the film on set with the people that you've cast you know yeah and if you want to get to like super basic screenwriting who's the antagonist of this movie okay <laughs> right like there's we we can't even kind of nail down that which is such a fundamental um thing like what and what she the just what the nature of what she's struggling against is so um character driven or nebulous or not defined yeah you know what i mean yeah. i mean and, and you feel free to disagree if you want but um we do get the sense that and this might be going a bit more out on a limb here but it's this comes about because the town of empire nevada gets shut down mm-hmm. because there's a shortage of a demand for sheep rock yeah um and that doesn't seem I it just going into this, I, I kind of thought this might be a bit more straightforward anti-capitalism. And mm. I'm I, I have some things to say about that. But to phrase it that way, that it was just a, a shortage of demand doesn't seem to be the, you know, they shut down the factory to make it cheaper in a different country. Like it, it doesn't seem as at least straightforwardly just this pro labor anti-corporate movie and that this person is struggling against it and I, I i do think that there's elements in there but it's it's at least not as straight down the middle as that right yeah and i think there yes exactly because there are ways that this movie could have been um much more staunchly anti-capitalism or oh, anti-corporate like so much <laughs> like i i remember the first time i watched this movie just being absolutely shocked when i saw the the amazon logo in like minute three yeah. um, and i was just like i i don't know how this happened and it's because probably because like they kind of don't talk any shit about amazon at all um but uh but yeah like what you're saying is there's there's definitely I would say there's almost an effort to not politicize the movie in any way. And um, and I think that works to this movie's, um, you know, to, to the benefit of this movie. And because it does sort of just keep the focus on Fern and whatever people she meets that you gravitate to the most, which for most people would be Swanky, Linda May, and uh, maybe Bob, you know? And um, yeah, and I think that sort of just like you said it it avoids the concept of an antagonist and it's just sort of dealing with life as it exists you know it's not like blaming somebody for something it's just being like this is the world i've been given and i have to navigate it a new way now you know yeah yeah and it's the death of her husband um it's uh, I, I i mean i guess at bottom if i had to pick one it's this uh struggle that she has between wanting to be part of society and not wanting to be part of society mm-hmm. um and i think that i mean we'll probably spend <laughs> we'll probably do our same attempt that we did in three billboards of defining what makes uh francis mcdorfin so good and how can, she can be so simultaneously likable while doing unlikable things yep. and just being um uh 
uh, really slippery in the best way that, that an actor can be. Mm-hmm. Um, but that seems to be really central to this is that she's someone who likes people, people like her. Um, she can make people laugh. She can have a good time with people. Um, but you can see her be cold and you can see her do bad things or at least not, you know, do things that are somewhat selfish or at least not what the people around her want to do, which doesn't make themselves necessarily, but just not, um, you know, not a complete white hat to put it in the old Western terms. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and that makes this character more realistic because nobody's pure good or pure evil. Um, and it just makes when coupled with the performance, obviously for a compelling character that you just want to see do things. And when you said, this is a movie that you're uh, guessing or maybe you've read, but finding a lot of things on set, she just has a remarkable way of everything she's doing, seeming like it's improvised. Mm -hmm. And I bet some of it is, Mm -hmm. um, I've read some of it is, but um, you know, some parts of this are word for word written down and rehearsed and it just still comes off so effortlessly. And, you know, I, you know, maybe let's not (laughs) try to nail that down because it is so, um, so abstract and tough to do but that i think ties in directly with what we're talking about of this movie not being um a straightforward good conquers evil sort of thing and for this actor and this character to uh, embody so much of that i think is what is so central to this yeah exactly and i think part of um yeah it's it is odd that like she goes through mcdormand as, as fern goes through has to do a variety of different things. She's also a producer on this movie, you know, so she's involved in basically all the uh, important creative conversations, um, even those that don't necessarily have anything to do with Fern. Um, Although I don't know what in this movie doesn't have (laughs) something to do with Fern, but, um, but the, the idea that, you know, sometimes she would have to uh, just listen when Swanky is telling her story, Linda May is telling her story or when Bob is telling his story at the end. And you're just sort of, you just have to be an engaged interviewer at those moments, you know, and, and there's a lot of that because there are a lot of individual people who tell stories in this movie. And I think a lot of the time what's happening is Francis McDormand has to set them up to tell that story. And we're not necessarily seeing that on camera because um, a lot of scenes in this movie begin in the middle, you know, be, I think yeah. just by the nature of getting to uh, let the artifice sort of fade away, like getting the people who aren't used to being surrounded by um, a guy on a, on a Ronin with an, an Alexa, you know, being around to just sort of like fall, have that fall into the background just by having Fern engage you. And that's how you get to the sort of the personality behind the person. And I think that, um, yeah, that combined with being an engaged interviewer and then knowing that right after that, they're probably going to have to like flip the camera right on you and you're just going to have to do reactions to what you just heard, you know, because I don't think they're shooting multiple cameras for a lot of this movie. Um, I know they had. Yeah, multiple and I'll, ca- I'll just point out for anyone who doesn't know that a lot of these actors are not actors. A lot of these people playing nomads are actual nomads who are not trained professionals. Yeah, I think everybody except for uh, Francis McDormand and David Strathairn is is a non-actor, you know, even uh taste right there and his his son isn't an actor you know and he is his son but he's not an actor yeah exactly (laughs) um but yeah and i think that's uh you're right that is an important designation um but 
but yeah, it, it's just such a complicated balance. And, um, and I think the, the sort of indescribable nature of Francis McDormand as an actor is so important to this movie because this movie doesn't give you a lot about Fern. Like you don't get a lot of explanation. The most you get is right at the end in the last 15 minutes between two separate conversations that she has with uh, her sister and Bob. Um, but it's very brief and it's just it, like you, you have to care about Fern for so much of this movie before you really know anything about her. And uh, I mean, you and I are going into this movie we know who Frances McDormand is and we have some sort of like positive recognition when we hear the name Frances McDormand, but I don't know. It's still, there still has to be something about her that grabs you. And um, like we've said so many times about compelling movie stars, you cannot describe it most yeah. of the time. The, the, yeah. the, the top, top of the pops of the profession, like you just can't describe, you can't describe what makes Frances McDormand watchable. You can't describe what makes, you know, or Denzel Washington or Ryan Gosling watchable, you know, like it's just, there's just something about this face in front of a camera and you're just like, I'm there, you know, like I like this, whatever yeah. is happening, I'm in, you know, and for a movie that relies so much on that face and also that brain to navigate <laughs> between all of these different faces, it's just, it's such an interesting performance, you know? Um, yeah. And I mean that, a- you know, cause it's so important to note that it's tied in with the producing aspects and the the documentarian aspects that she has to hold to you know yeah and, but i think it's more central like she's such a gigantic part of three billboards but this is still more important to have this character has to be completely correct yes i agree yeah i and not nest not just because she's in <laughs> every scene and almost every shot yeah um but because this is more about her personality that movie is largely about her personality this is i don't know 96 percent about her personality so um it, it just has to hit and it does yeah and i think it also helps that mcdormand you know as sort of a known figure in culture is still kind of mysterious you know like um i don't mean like you know she disappears into a cloud of smoke as soon as the oscars win or are over but like you know, you don't really know much about Frances McDormand, the person. And I think that um, one that plays perfectly into what the movie wants us to learn or how the movie wants us to learn about Fern, um, because we're not really bringing much to this, even though we know who she is and uh, she has won multiple Oscars before this movie, you know? <laughs> yeah. um, and that combination of not knowing much about her and then seeing a lot of the like really personable stuff, like I one of my favorite moments in this movie is uh, her and Dave at the zoo and the aquarium. And it's just so much fun just being yeah. with them in those yeah. moments, you know, and um, there's just there's just something like you're in this sort of quote unquote formless movie. Um, you're still having fun there. You're still enjoying being there. And and that translates to even, you know, some of the things that are less fun you know um but you just still you still enjoy being with this person and and the person is a mystery but you are able to be surprised by them even though they've been famous for 25 years (laughs) yeah yeah no doubt and um i think one 
One thing that I really like is, and you talked about how this is a formless movie. Um, I think we both danced around. I assume we both find this to be a very pretty movie when it chooses to be. Oh, of course. Um, yeah. uh, and I think sometimes a movie that uh, wants to be really compelling visually can sort of get lost in the focus and maybe just um, be very concerned with that. But mm-hmm. I was impressed by this movie's ability to do both of those at the same time. And there's a few examples, but I think when she's at the RTR, you know, tribe community the yep. first time. The rubber um, tramp rendezvous. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Sorry. The rubber tramp rendezvous. Mm-hmm. Um, she, she goes for this walk and it's one of the longer takes in this movie. It's the um, best shot in the movie. <laughs> pardon? It's the best shot in the movie for sure. Yeah. I, yeah. There, there's some really kind of just compelling, beautiful shots but this one um for how big it is how long it is and as i said it, it it's gorgeous to look at certain frames of them as a still image but it's actually accomplishing a ton you know she we, we see her walk through this and she seems happy you know we don't often see her as happy we sometimes we see her as content sometimes we see her as struggling but she seems genuinely pleased in this moment mm-hmm. um she goes for this walk and it's way out in the desert and so you have to just have all that space right to make it look good mm-hmm. like just there's a wall behind it and you have to frame a couple things in front of it um so we, we see her go for the stroll uh some of her i think linda may and some other people say come join us like mm-hmm. they she they literally say to her come fern come join us and she says nah i'm just going for a walk uh be back soon and she continues to walk and this this take just continues as she walks through the community and the different people living their lives in different, uh, you know, slightly different ma- manners out there. Um, partway through, she's literally turned her back on them and on the camera, and it's still just a, a gorgeous shot. And she just walks to the edge of this community. Mm-hmm. And so she's literally like on the outside of the outside of society at this point. Mm-hmm. And as I said, this seems so central to her character. She's she's someone people want around. Um, she's some someone who's at least for moments at a time or you know i don't know how long these this community lasts out there but days or weeks at a time she can find her way in these spots you know she finds her way into david's family uh, extended family and is happy and people like her and people want her to stay around um but she just says no like she just continues to move on mm-hmm. and um you know we see her we see her turn her back we see her walk sort of all the way to the edge and um yeah, it's just to me like that movie that that scene really sums up. I think almost everything that this movie gets right. Uh, it, it looks beautiful, but it doesn't get bogged down in just having pretty shots. It's communicating something about the story and the central character as as we um, watch these visual elements unfold in front of us. And yeah, it's it's the best shot because it's gorgeous, but it's also the best shot because it does so many things that are hard to do. Um, with a ton of more explicit dialogue and i think it just nails it in that in that sequence yeah absolutely and and then the trucks showing up in the last second that may or may not have been a part of the film crew and i would bet are not and it's just like absolute perfect luck um to finish the shot it's just really really cool um but yeah and i think to tie into what you were saying um that also happens when this community is still pretty new to fern um she is like you said, it's early on in the movie and it's like she's walking and exploring it. You know, it's she's just exploring this this new terrain and we're just following her because the main um, 
thing that the camera does in this movie is just sort of follow fern it just glides with fern and um there are there are more static shots in this movie than you would guess after you watch it if you were to like you know guess the number of jelly beans in the jar you would guess lower than the number of static shots that there are in this movie but they really pick their spots um for the static shots and for especially when when fern is out um out in the the world and exploring uh the camera really just smoothly glides like steady cam style they're on a ronin but same principle applies um it just follows her you know and and that's exactly what you're talking about and that's that's the best biggest example but it it happens constantly throughout the movie we're just tra- yeah. we're traveling with fern you know yeah and even that that sense of constant motion with her i mean this is a community of people who sort of got outside of you know what we think of typical society and form this community and she seems to um embrace it but won't fully be satisfied with it you know she she learns all the tools and tricks that these people have about living outside of society and then chooses to live outside of that little society yeah. you know they, and they all they all travel i understand that this isn't just like a, a commune that stays there it is a limited um little community who they hope to see each other down the road as they say but mm-hmm. you do get the sense that um even this island of misfit toys is not misfit toy enough for, for Fern. And she, mm. uh, th- they want her there and she, she finds genuine connections. You know, the, the most meaningful connections we see in this movie are with people she finds there for sure. Um, but still kind of has to, to continue wandering even away from the wanderers. And that's, you know, the, truly nomadic nature of the central character here yeah absolutely and i think something really important to note about fern which we kind of have is and what you're talking about there is she just has to she has to have control you know she has to control what she does and there are a number of times in this movie where somebody says to somebody uh, says to fern i mean even specifically to get to the scene that we're talking about um, earlier in the movie linda may says to fern you should come to the rtr it i'll draw a map for you it's fun you'll be meet all you'll meet all these people and her immediate reaction the reaction we see on camera or the only reaction we see on camera from her is to say no and then um linda may says i'll draw you a map anyway and so that when fern comes to that conclusion on her own to go there she can you know just like yeah and and like you said in that in that shot um you know linda invites her to sit down and she says no i'm doing i'm doing my thing you know and uh when dave invites her to um, come visit later. She's not committal. Um, when her sister, but she does eventually go. And when her sister invites her to, or says, you have to come home to get this money to fix your van later on. Um, it's the most aggressive. We, we hear Fern in the whole movie. She's like, no, but she only goes, she only does what somebody tells her to do because she has no other option. You know? Yeah. I'm being stubborn. Well, I think you're being a bitch. (laughs) That's cold. That's a it's so mean cold. thing to say to your sister who's trying to help you. You know yeah. what I mean? That's it's not it's not the easiest way to write a character that you eventually want us to like. But yeah. um, it still sort of walks that fine line because I think that for a lot of people, and I'm sure there's people on both extremes who have their mind made up. But in my head, depending on what scene you're watching, you come up with different answers to: Is she lonely? Is she mm-hmm. sad? Is she self-sabotaging? Is she independent is she doing what she wants to do is she happy you know what i mean there's all these questions that um 
are legitimate <laughs> and that you could take different sides of or different people could take different sides of in the same scene. Um, and some people watch her eating chicken alone in the trailer is something very sad and some people find that very freeing and delicious and yeah. um, and know, those people that find it sad d- didn't notice how good that chicken looked yeah it does look so good. it looks so good <laughs> right and even you know we see her there's a scene i still don't really know but when she's running around the rocks and david yells at her to oh, see if yeah. she's found anything she says rocks um i don't have my mind made up uh, right. the, the, there are some scenes that seem more straightforward and that are meant to evoke that she's happy or tranquil. You know, when she, she when she's floating in the water, nude, and just it's just it just seems very calm and um, it doesn't seem sad to me. That might seem sad to some people, and then there are some scenes that I would find sad that some people would you know have a, a more of a positive take on. Mm-hmm. And I think definitely part of this and another gigantic strength of this movie is the score. I think the music is fantastic in this movie. Um, I agree. Ludovico Iannotti, probably not correct at all, but um, it's just very hauntingly beautiful music, and especially around the, the sugar beet harvest. I think that's um, a really powerful piece, but I'd say hauntingly beautiful just because, like I'm saying about so much of this composition and how this is written and how this is performed, I, I'm not sure, and I bet the different times I watched this movie, some of them struck me differently, depending on what mood I was in or what just happened to me. Um, you, I think you're really meant to f- constantly be asking yourself if she's making the most of her life or wasting it, and I think that that's communicated in, uh, in some of the cinematography, but I think that's really, really achieved, and a lot of the heavy lifting is done by such a good score. Yeah, and I think that... Um, I think a lot of those scenes of her alone... I, I enjoy it because I, I'm always fascinated by um, the difference between like uh, being lonely and just being alone, you know, like they're because they're not the same thing, you know, like being yeah. lonely means you actively wish you were around other people. And I feel watching Fern in a lot of these scenes, she's just happy being alone. And just because she's not not smiling necessarily, like, I, I don't know, I still I, I don't feel this movie is sad and i don't feel that those like montages of her in nature are sad at all like i think they're really joyful um just sort of in a in a very quiet way and it's just there is like she's uh, she's lonely in the way that she she wishes she could still be with Bo, but she's not right uh, she's not like pining for anybody who can she can still be with you know like she's happy alone i think which is why she resists um so many so many requests to uh, join people places, you know, until she comes to that conclusion by herself because um, because she knows like what she has is good enough for now. Like she's happy. She's happy being alone and uh, or at least content, you know, and um, and I, th- I think the movie does that really well. And I think what I have found when people say that this is a sad movie, it's because they don't like being alone, <laughs> you know? Right. And uh, that is a, that's a setting that I'm, I'm very good at, you know? Yeah. As so somebody who she... likes watching movies constantly, but continue. Right. So why does she encourage Dave to go find his family? Because it's the right thing to do or because he, by her, by his gestures of reaching out to her, make it clear that he's not happy alone. I think it's a combination of both um, because other, like, other than her sister, uh, who she seems to have a complicated relationship with and or maybe feels 
awkward talking to in some capacity um i she doesn't really have family left you know she talks about how Bo didn't have any contact with his parents uh or didn't know his parents and we don't hear anything about siblings but uh i don't know i think it's just um or maybe it's a combination of that and just seeing her sister reminds her of Bo somehow you know so she has to totally keep her out of the way but um i think it's just Sorry, I'm figuring this out as I say it. But uh, I think it's because she knows that Dave is better off with other people or thinks Dave is better off with other people and she wants to do the good human thing, you know? I think it's a combination of both. And also, and she... if if he is no longer around her, then she, she doesn't have to worry about her relationship <laughs> with him in any way. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Does she wrong him by her treatment of him and but... going to see his family? No. No, I don't think so at all. That's just part of her life of going through people's lives. I, and I don't mean that in like a using them up kind of way, but just as a nomad that you go through different social settings by the very definition of that. Absolutely. Like I think that because so much, so many of the relationships in this movie are very brief, you know, and this is, that's just one that we spend slightly more time with, you know, and um I think that in the same way that her and Linda may depart and her and Swanky depart, it's just, it's just, this is how it goes. You know, like you can, you want, you are living in this kind of life because you want to control your life. And when the person that you're hanging out with and you don't, uh, you know, don't view control in the same way anymore, then you just sort of depart and that's, and you see each other down the road, you know? Yeah. The Swanky one gets me by the way. Oh, Swanky's. Um fantastic she's like also she is a great performer when she's talking about uh the the van being ratty um that that moment where she's they're painting her van she's like your van looks kind of ratty i'm gonna give you like she's warren Beatty. like she's just like doing warren Beatty (laughs) in a comedy it's unbelievable but i but it's the way that she plays comedy that that moment is exactly like how warren Beatty would play in 1972 it's crazy but um uh but yes i agree uh to totally shift gears i agree that that uh i mean i i think both her and linda may have really powerful moments but uh but yeah swanky sending the video is a really nice touch in the movie. yeah and no it's it's swanky's goodbye speech is what yes exactly when I, when I watch it um yeah linda may's that that stuff is i think emotionally effective as well um I'll, also uh fern gives an all-time reaction shot during linda may uh linda may's explanation or uh, speech at the beginning but continue. oh right yeah. yeah and um her line of you you've given me so much i think is just a really just a, a nice crisp piece of dialogue yeah. at that moment that i think is really really effective mm-hmm. um yeah linda may's is different because and I, I i relate this to um her leaving david like that linda may leaves um fern and fern is I mean, at least from what we see, zero percent bitter. She's 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 been extremely close with this woman, and someone I think she would say she values is one of the most important people in her life at that point. I assume, mm-hmm. um, but respects her independence and her her desire to go do what she finds most important in life. Mm-hmm. When we were talking about the rubber tramp rendezvous, yeah, um, there is that moment of when everyone else is left and she's the only one there. You yes. know, like the, there is, I think, an important moment of um, just kind of her remaining beyond this uh, this community and kind of seeing it to its dissolution and um, taking what she has 
from that experience, you know, because that's that's her learning so much about how, how she is going to live by herself for so long yeah. or, or, or close to by herself, seemingly. Yeah, I mean, yeah, and at least and for at least a year, you know, this movie, we, excuse me, we track with her for for a year, you know, and um, so at, at the very least. And, and like you said, or like you mentioned, Linda May, like Linda May is kind of like her her teacher for the beginning, you know, she gets her on the right path. And, um, that's, that's pretty much their relationship, you know, from the the Amazon, uh, lunchtime introductions and doing puzzles while they're doing, or doing a puzzle together while they're uh, doing laundry, um, all that. And, and yeah, and to see her alone again, is just sort of like, you know, she had found the beginnings of a community, but this community is founded on, doing your own thing you know so it's just sort of like you're not going to travel together because that doesn't um doesn't really fit you know it's it's also like a weird thing to assume 40 adults would do (laughs) together you know (laughs) um so i i like i i like this movie or i like to look at this movie as uh a bit of a western and i know it's easy to do that just because there are lots of deserts in this movie and lots of traveling cowboy hats and also um fern sister straight up says you guys are like the frontiers it's an american tradition all these things but um i like the way that uh there are a couple small ways that this movie sort of manipulates genre the genre um one it's historically an extremely male genre and this is a very female movie like uh, both on the production side and the performance and the uh, actors. Um, yep. Sorry. Yeah. No, yeah. I agree. It's like I the only Western I can think of other than that shitty Natalie Portman movie that everybody hated um, that the lead is a female. The only one I can think of is Me- Meek's Cutoff, um, the Kelly Reichardt movie. And the other thing is that the Western typically, like the Western as we think about it, the classical Western, it uses like the plains are like a beginning, an open road of a new world, right? Like the the America hasn't been built. The America that we know in 1964 or whatever, when we're watching True Grit, hasn't doesn't exist yet. It's still in the early days, and we're setting the rules for the the new society. I guess Deadwood is the best example of a western that <laughs> yeah. is just straight up about that to, top to bottom. But um, uh, but this movie sort of uses the the planes in a totally different way because it's it's the desert still exists but these people like fern are thrown out into these planes once something ends you know and i think that that inversion of the western idea of having to explore the open uh the open roads because the thing that you would attach yourself to is now no longer exists is an interesting interesting inversion on westerns you know yeah, yeah, no, it's, I didn't thought of that, but that's interesting. The idea that your, um, your home is <laughs> what you thought your home just is no longer an option for you. Yeah, and now you have to travel from settlement to settlement on your, on your horse, which is a van, <laughs> <laughs> on Vanguard the van. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And uh, part of the reason, um, I'm I'm guessing you haven't seen the rider. No. Okay. So that's a very like the thing that I love about the writer is that it is, it's a really cool, subtle uh, commentary on westerns as a genre, and and that's sort of what tipped me off to, um, to Nomadland being a western, and that one's more obvious because it's literally about a cowboy. <laughs> but um, but but yeah. Um, and so uh, do do you want to talk about that in um 
kind of terms of the the film industry now talk about westerns uh no sort of just like that that things have changed so hmm. drastically that i think that um uh, it just seems like with with so many the, the streaming services yeah. that people aren't making films the way that they used to, and I think people are still very much navigating that space. And um, Francis McDormand being a producer on this, and I know that this is kind of years, uh, a few years maybe ahead of that. You know, the fact that this came out on Disney Plus is it's. <laughs> was accidental as we said but. yeah exactly this would would have been like a standard independent theatrical release where it plays it two two to three theaters in a metropolis and maybe plays at a city with a population of three hundred thousand. you know yeah uh, no no for sure I, I i'm not saying it was great with that in mind but it's the way that it functions now i mean the way that we have you know they work at amazon she doesn't seem happy about that you know she says the it's great money you know she it's quite clear she's not sort of uh satisfied with the work the way that maybe um uh, an artist might not be satisfied with uh the creative aspects of it uh we she goes to see avengers or walks by the avengers. she walks by it i think she gets her coke elsewhere i don't think i don't think she actually yeah. sees avengers. she doesn't molotov cocktail it no, she does style either. She um and i don't know I, I thought it was just um really inter- like interesting the way that chloe zhao had the sort of adulation and then immediate backlash and censorship from the Chinese government when yeah. uh, this was as successful as it was. And I think it was right after the Golden Globes that most of that happened. And the way that the growing power of the Chinese market is changing media and, and shaping what these streamers are doing just because there's so much money to be made there. And it, it, it just... Um, those things together sort of struck me as a weird sort of circumstance because it's definitely not something that was written into this at all yeah um but it, it does seem interesting the way that it rears its head yes so um i will say like the one thing that uh like i don't i don't i don't know i don't really have strong opinions on anything and also don't feel or much of what you've mentioned and also don't feel necessarily like qualified to talk about them like i don't know that i've done the research necessary to comment but i i will say like this movie this i mean chloe Zhao's two movies uh or sorry last year's movie and this year's movie kind of represent what filmmaking is going to be there's going to be really small movies and there's going to be really big movies and that's it and you know we've seen this transition happening and this is tied into the this whole streaming service um and or theatrical sort of conversation because the only movies that that people know are going to be or that the people who make money um, on movies know are going to be successful are are the the Marvel movies, you know, where you can just print money with them. You know, people are going to show up to them theatrically. Whereas something like Nomadland, you kind of you need to get the kind of critical adulation that Nomadland got in order for people to show up at the movie theaters. And of course, that wasn't a real a real opportunity given the year that it was released in. But yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I just think the difference is only going to grow bigger and bigger. And we've seen fewer and fewer of the sort of 30 to $60 million movies that in the 90s were what everything was. You know, where you get like Jerry Maguire is is a movie that is notable in the culture and that people go to see theatrically and talk about, you know. And, you know, it seemed, the story is, seems small, but it's 
when you start adding up all the pieces, it's more expensive than you think. Um, right. And but it's still not like a gigantic tentpole. Exactly. It's yeah. a tentpole in that it's a Tom Cruise movie in, in 1995 or 96. That's, that's <laughs> yeah. quite a tentpole. But um, but yeah, I think that uh, you're right that the big versus small is only going to continue to grow and grow. And this movie's um, this movie definitely shows some of the big and but a lot of the small. You know, I think it's just sort of about finding the movie's take on that is finding meaning in the small moments and and tolerating the big when you have to like the progressive RV show, you know, it's sponsored by progressive insurance um, <laughs> yeah. and seeing those, those big, big campers. Um, so yeah, I think that's, that's what I've got. That's all I've got basically. What, what, no, what did you make of her pretending to drive the big camper then? That's just funny. She's hanging out with her friends. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah, because they're kind of making fun of it, but they're making fun of it because it's never going to be an option for them too, right? You know, like, yeah. uh, I mean, I can't think of an example off the top of our of my head, but I'm sure I've made fun of a rich person for something that, like, I would love to have, you know? But <laughs> it's just not ever going to be a thing. Like, maybe some some asshole courtside at an NBA playoff game, you know? Yeah. I'm just making fun of them because I so desperately wish I was sitting next to Spike Lee. You know? <laughs> or Quentin Tarantino buying a theater. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Look, if he wants to sign the new Beverly over to me alongside <laughs> with the money it takes to run the new Beverly, I would happily, happily accept. Right, exactly. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, there's, so we somehow, I, I won't make this long, but we somehow haven't talked about Terrence Malick, uh, which I think is a miracle given that I am <laughs> one of the two people on this podcast. Um, but I think that, Something this because when I watch this movie, I just see like direct descendant of Terrence Malick. But I think the the key difference and something that I think makes it more palatable to um, because with Terrence Malick, you're either in or you're out. There's no you and you know, within the first five minutes, you know, like <laughs> if I had a dollar for every time I've been in a movie theater and somebody walked out of a Terrence Malick movie in the first 20 minutes and didn't come back like i could you'd, pay to you'd go be see sitting courtside at an nba game yeah exactly he was likely right now um but uh but there's something one there's the voiceover monologues don't exist the 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 there is no sort of um just stupid poetry that means makes nothing makes no sense and there's no there's no sort of monologues over just images um and there is literally poetic monologues over images at the end there of are movie. but they they have <laughs> the beginning of the, the yeah. person saying it on on screen whereas um in malik movies it's him just not even shooting footage of them he's handing them pieces of paper to read and only recording audio but yeah. and i think the that those movies are meant to be so naturalistic, but also star the biggest movie stars. Like if you just look at the casts of Terrence Malick's movies, basically uh, from the thin red line on, it's just absolute murderers row after absolute murderers row. And putting that sort of naturalistic style around people who are actually performing naturalistically because this is the only way that they know totally changes the movie. And even though the, the, you know, Jow has talked about how Malik is a huge influence on both her and uh, the cinematographer. And uh, Terrence Malik gave notes on Nomadland, which I learned today and was very surprised Ooh. about. Yeah, um, he he to quote his uh, the PR rep um, from the profile I was reading. 
the PR rep says he flipped for it, uh, which is positive, I guess. Um, <laughs> I'd say so. Yeah, but uh, but the the sort of like naturalistic style combined with people who are actually people we have no attachment to, like we don't have any, we have attachments to Ben Affleck or Kate Blanchett or whoever. Um, But we have, we don't know who Swanky is, you know, like we know the things we know about Swanky, we learn in Nomadland and that's pretty much it. That's all we know. And, um, and I think taking the sort of naturalistic style even further, like leaning even more heavily into it, take something that seems like it would be maybe more impenetrable on paper because it's like supernaturalistic movie starring nobody you've ever heard of plus Francis McDormand versus supernaturalistic movie starring Brad Pitt and Sean Penn and uh, Jessica Chastain all of whom you've heard of yeah um for somehow the the first one is more palatable because it more (laughs) it more further leans into uh one side of the scale you know as opposed to, to putting a thumb on each side and um and i thought that was really interesting and um and perfect for a road movie and a travel movie where you're supposed to bump into people who you have never seen before and know nothing about absolutely like um absolutely yeah, if Terrence Malick could ever make a movie with a plot and he made a road movie, it would be my favorite movie ever made. You know, like, <laughs> Right. Yeah. Um, but I just thought that was an interesting take on... Because most people who imitate Terrence Malick, and I'm not saying this is an imitation of Terrence Malick, but it's so heavily influenced by his work. Um, most people who really lean into Terrence Malick uh, influences from top to bottom on their film, it, it tends to be horrible um and this is not this is great i love this you know and and i'm all for the continuing of that sort of style because um this movie also touches a lot like there's a lot of talk of generations in this movie and um chloe Zhao is kind of just the the generational terrence malick you know she's just uh she's our generation's version of him you know yeah and for that to be uh i just i just love when the way that i was talking about how the the music achieves a lot of the things that I think that the writing wants to achieve and mm-hmm. that's true of the, the performance um, that that's a pre-production casting thing that makes this complete vision of a, a road movie about someone who travels through different people's lives um, I think is th- what you're pointing to is something that's so incredible and is not derivative of one of your favorite filmmakers but takes something and puts a a new spin on it which is the best you can hope for in the new generation of something absolutely yeah that's exactly right um and so one other thing i i um i really enjoy and we've talked about with the naturalism of this movie and um i just want to point out that uh you know they're shooting so much on natural light they're probably using bounces and stuff to to bounce it around but it's it's pretty clear that there's a pretty strong set of rules for lighting and uh and that is just use the sun um but uh but i found something interesting when uh cinematographer joshua james richards um was talking about how he doesn't really like focus on gear or anything like that he's not super interested in that he spends most of his time on set uh watching the sun and just wait which is you know that's a thing that that's a director of photography thing but deciding when the light is perfect to shoot this particular moment and him talking about the delicate balance of i don't want knowing that you know the the vast majority of these the things that we're seeing the stories from these actors or sorry from these non-actors who are acting um to get that naturalism you can probably only do one take you know so and he's talking about how 
um, watching the sun and he doesn't want to get to a point where they're uh, him and Chloe Zhao are looking at each other at the end of the take and Chloe Zhao is like, okay, we got it. And him saying to himself, I wish we had waited five more minutes for the sun to set a little bit more, you know, um, yeah. to, to make it look perfectly uh, perfect. And that's something that runs throughout the whole production top to bottom, because while um, you're waiting for the sun to move in a certain way, often they would they would pop into the van and shoot like a quick uh, quick moment in the van and um this whole movie is just and since since it's a small movie you can't just like tell everybody this isn't the revenant you don't get to say all right everybody stand around until the light is perfect because we have an infinite amount of money because this is a leonardo dicaprio movie you know <laughs> yeah. it's it's we have this number of days to shoot everything we need and we just have to be malleable and we have to make it work and um, and I think that is something that's always really, it's such a complicated mind state to be in for a number of months and, um, and every day. And it's just, I like making a movie is so difficult. Making a movie when you have everything that you need and everything that you want <laughs> is so difficult. Yeah. And just <laughs> making a movie in this way um where you have to be constantly malleable like that is just i i can't even fathom it it's it's must be so stressful it's uh it's just amazing you know yeah and once again uh, for a movie about people just getting by and scraping by and doing things however they need to and you know using a dead spouse's tackle box to make a counter in your <laughs> in your van because um that's all you have i think that's uh very appropriate yeah absolutely and i think that um it's just a couple more like one more thing that i want to talk about that sort of ties into the ending is the we talked about how the camera moves with fern um and there are some static shots as i mentioned and the moments where we get static shots are when we're not when we're um when fern is sort of either not moving or um not not choosing not to engage with something like a really beautiful one that we see is uh, Fern walking away from her sister's house as her sister goes back into the house. Like just this, this shot where we see their totally divergent lifestyles, like right. in, a, in a perfectly framed shot. And from, from that point on, like, and then we're back in the van with Fern, you know, we're following her again. Um, but we have to watch the split and a static, static shot. And um, when we see her after she's gone to visit Dave, um, you know, we're shooting all the stuff in, inside the house with, uh, th- for Thanksgiving, like the rest, of, like most of the movie has been, you know, we get the, the most Malik shot of all time, the tiny baby hand inside of an adult's hand, you know, <laughs> um, and then we get, uh, her after she wakes up in the morning she's smoking outside of her van and the you can see the van is on one side the house is on the other side and there's a fence directly directly in the middle and it's just this really beautiful um setup shot of just like a line that she she doesn't she can't cross because what does she do right after that she goes into the house and we're following her a little bit and then we get a bunch of static shots as she realizes that she can't stay in this house she has to go back on the road and there's a little bit of combination with that in the empire moments at the very end where um we roam in the living room a bit with her but most of those empire shots are static until she chooses to leave she leaves she walks out the back door and walks out that fence and the camera pushes out with her and that's the second last shot of the movie and then we got the shot of her driving in the van like 
And I think that that whole combination of things and showing her struggling with um, being sort of in stasis and and movement and choosing to move and uh, moving in a particular way, I think is is told very interestingly and in a visual way that I don't I haven't seen the movie getting credit for because I think when you lean so heavily into that sort of naturalistic aesthetic, when you choose a few moments to do like straight up, like film grammar line in between two objects that she's (laughs) choosing between, you know, it just, it makes it harder to notice because you're just, you're so wrapped up in the style that, that we've been watching throughout the movie. And, you know, Fern's whole journey is about what she talks about with Bob in the last, um, her ending conversation with Bob, you know, we get the beginning conversation with him and then the, the ending conversation right towards the end and how she says she maybe spent too much time remembering and how she had to go back to see the way, or sorry, it's spent too much time remembering. And then she goes back to empire to see the way that things were right. Yeah. And, or sorry, the way that things are to compare to what she has in her head, which is the way things were. And I think what the, the ending of this movie is, um, the reason I think this movie's, very hopeful is that she's sort of getting I don't know I don't think you ever get I I mean I wouldn't know but I don't think you ever get closure per se on like something like that but some element of closure that allows her to live her life and I think the the last shot of this movie is the the second last shot of this movie is her leaving behind like finally being able to leave behind that idea that she had in her head the memory that or that the memory that she's been spending too much time thinking about um, too much of her life on and then the the last shot of the movie, we finally see, we've seen her on the road constantly throughout this movie, but now she finally has like an open road in front of her. Now, now she's finally in control because she's able to move on. And I think that, you know, it's a, it's a sad movie. It's a happy movie and it's a beautiful movie, but, uh, but I do think it's, it's an extremely hopeful movie, at least, at least as far as Fern is concerned. And I think this is a movie about um, humans and community. And I think the, the capitalism thing sort of drives them there and gives them ways when they can find jobs to, to sort of fund that. But I do think it's about um, humans finding humans or humans just being who they want to be. And I think that's a, it's a really powerful, good ending. And and I love it. It's a great movie. Well, we look forward to Chloe Zhao's next. Oh yeah. Uh, well, <laughs> <laughs> the one after. I look forward to the one after for sure. The Eternals 2. <laughs> the Eternals 2, too many Eternals. Uh, <laughs> thanks for listening to the McGuffin Men, and uh, check back next time.